Let's open our Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 4. And I'm going to put up on the screen something I put up on Christmas Eve. It is a picture of the shepherd's fields. It's one of my favorite places. I went into quite a bit of detail on Christmas Eve explaining why Jesus was not born on December 25th. Now that might come as a shock to some of you, but he wasn't. But we go on and explain why. And um, we have pretty good proof, if you listen to the study, uh, why he was probably born on September 29th, 1 BC. And that all ties into Elizabeth uh, because it gives, when Mary went to visit her, the time frame of how far along she was in her pregnancy. And um, so if you want to follow that, um, there it is. There's so much that happened in this field, I'll just touch on it. But the thing that's amazing about it is if you would go over the hill where the blue sky is and you'd go down, you would run into the Dead Sea. It was about 20 miles from there. But it is relatively unchanged. And when you go there, um, again, I, I spoke more extensively on it on Christmas Eve. This is where um, Naomi and her husband Elimelech lived when they had the famine. And uh, they were from Bethlehem. And so they left and went to Moab. And uh, their two sons die who had married two Moabites. One was Ruth. And Ruth comes back with Naomi, as you all know. And uh, they fell in love and had a son. And uh, their son had a son who was King David. So in this very field that you're looking at, we have the fields of Boaz. And he married Ruth. And eventually, David is the offspring. Where did David come from? Well, Bethlehem. If you look to the far right where it starts to go up the hill and you begin to see buildings, that's Bethlehem. It's about seven miles south of Jerusalem. And then um, the study was primarily the angels calling to the shepherds who were in the what fields? The shepherds' fields. So when we go there and give this study, it really is quite amazing. It's an A-site, it's the real deal, and um, it is relatively unchanged. Um, David was roughly 3000 BC, and it goes back even before that. But you have all this history taking place in this one spot. And I also mentioned that um, we have a family that raises sheep Um, to the far left towards the highway. And when they see us coming, um, uh, the boy will go get uh, six or seven sheep. And he knows that if he brings them over and and uses, as I'm giving a Bible study, and he just stays there as a backdrop that he knows he's going to get paid for it later. (laughs) I like the ambiance of having uh, being in the shepherd's field and actually have a shepherd there. 
Last matter of fact, last time we were there, his mother came out and sang a song for us. So we've gotten to know some of these people over the years. So anyway, we're just going to leave that up this morning. Those are the shepherd's fields. Bethlehem is up on a hill. And um, let's begin with chapter 4 of Galatians 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit, his Son, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir of God through Christ. Um, Christmas was yesterday. This is Christmas Sunday. So this Christmas, 2021... Um, we will be looking at Jesus' birth in quite a bit of detail on uh, went through on Christmas Eve uh, a, a little bit differently. And I would be, in, um, we're going to look at the coming of Jesus a little differently, mostly from an Old Testament prophetic foretelling his coming. You see there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the first and the second coming of Jesus. This morning we're just going to look at eight of them. Then we'll close with the three main reasons for his comings. So we've just read Galatians that says when the fullness of time had come. Well, that means there had to be a beginning when he was foretold that he was going to come. So I'd like to go back all the way to the book of Genesis, where we have in Genesis 3, the first mention of the coming of Jesus Christ. Of course, in the previous chapter, we see the fall of Adam and Eve, and we find that there were consequences God had given the garden for Adam and Eve to care for it. And um, Adam didn't have to do any work except a little gardening until after the curse. Part of the curse was now he'd have to work from the sweat of his brow and the food would have to come about because of his labor. That, that wasn't the way it was before. Um, and The woman had a curse placed upon her, but I'm looking more at the curse that we find from Lucifer, the serpent. And he challenges God's word, and he's been challenging God's word ever since. And God curses him in verse 14 of chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, done what? Well, has God said that the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die? You won't die. And um, that was the first lie. And um, because you have done this, well, that's what he did. Well, that you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you 
and the woman, and notice, and between your seed and her seed. Now the he is what I'm interested in in the next verse. He shall bruise your head. Well, he's talking to the servant, and he's using the word your. So the he there is the very first reference that the bruising that Jesus took or the beating that Jesus took. Um, the he is Jesus is going to bruise your head. In other words, he's going to defeat you eventually. And you shall bruise his heel. Well, again, this is the beating and the whipping and the scourging that the Lord took um, by the Romans. But here we have the very first reference, the very first prophecy of um, what would happen. And we could go on this particular one. I don't, didn't, some of them will actually go to see the fulfillment of the prophecy, but everybody here is well enough aware that's exactly what happened. And what um, the defeat where he conquers him, what happened in the garden is that Adam was in charge. But because of his fall, it was forfeited to Satan. So that's why the scriptures call Satan the God of this world. All the stuff that's going on, people ask questions, well, why do people get cancer? Why do people get sick? And why does this happen? And why does that happen? Why did a tornado come and take, take out Job's house and kill seven of his sons and three of his daughter? God's sovereign, but God allowed it to happen. Having said that, the victory was all accomplished on Calvary's cross. And the Bible actually says that if Satan knew that that's where he was going to be defeated, he would have never let it happen. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us he knows the Bible, um, but he didn't know the Bible at that time because it was not yet written at that time. Is everybody tracking with me so far? So what happened is it's like when you're Christmas shopping and you, you got an expensive item and you can't pay can't pay for it all at the same time, so you put money down. It's yours. All you have to do is come back and pick it up and pay, pay the rest of it. Well, what happened on Calvary's cross is the victory was won. It's finished, paid in full. But God's love for you and love for me wanted to extend that plan. He did not reclaim planet Earth after the resurrection, but he's going to. I'm going to show you where. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. What we have here is a chapter 4, verse 1, I believe, is a rapture of the church because in chapter 5 we find the church in heaven singing a song. But in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And I saw it in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Now, this would be the Father. A scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open a scroll or to look at it. So John is taking us in, so I wept much. Well, what's the big deal, John? 
why are you weeping much? Nobody could even look at this thing because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look at it. And the angel says to John in verse five, one of the elders said to him, do not weep, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open a scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. So what, what is this? What is this um, scroll that's taken out of the Father's hands? Well, it's more than just uh, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. It's actually the title deed. What Jesus purchased on Calvary's cross was buying back, if you will, planet Earth. And he is going to keep his promise where the angels declared glory to God in the highest peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Well, we'll get that in a little bit, but look look around and say, say what? (laughs) Peace on earth? No, but there's going to be. When? Well, after the seven-year tribulation, when he comes back and sets up his kingdom, which we'll be talking about later, and we will rule and reign with him. Remember Galatians? We're sons now and heirs. And um, when it talks about um, the earth being his kingdom, we don't see that yet, but it's coming. And this is important on an emotional, psychological level for all of us. Why? Because Christmas can really be a bummer for a lot of people, especially if you don't know the Lord. Especially if you lost a loved one as your first Christmas with Autumn or fill in the blank. Uh, For others, it's a great time. But um, what we do have, no matter what the circumstances, is this glorious hope that we are going, in Revelation 3, we are going to rule and reign with him throughout that thousand year period of time. What are we going to do after that? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Very little is talked about eternity. I'm sure you'll have something for us. We're not going to be sitting on some clouds, strumming some harp and doing that sort of thing. We have no idea. And I think it's probably because we we really couldn't wrap our head around the magnitude of what heaven is really all about. I'm certain it's multidimensional at at the very, very least. And... um, Eyes haven't seen or ears heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And what's at his right hand? Pleasures forevermore. What does that mean? I don't know. But it sure sounds good, you gotta admit. <laughs> sounds good to me. So this time of year in Revelation, what is taking place? Well, don't cry, John. Um, it's been redeemed. And it just hasn't, we just hasn't been set up yet, but the kingdom will be set up, and that was um, what Satan took from Adam, and he's been the god of this world ever since. 
The Bible says that the devil has come to kill, to steal, and destroy. And he hates you more than you can possibly imagine. All right, that's the first one. The second one, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter two. Some of these are gonna dovetail together. Matthew two, verse two, talks about his star. When the wise men came, and this is where we were on um, Friday night, and uh, we went into a pretty detailed study of who the Magi actually were. They were kingmakers, and they had a man who is Magrab, that's M-A-G-R-A-B, which means chief of the Magi. And the man who owned that title was Daniel. And we went back into the Old Testament where it shows that he was raised up to be the overseer of the Magi. And so it wasn't just three wise kings that came in. It said all Jerusalem trembled when they saw this entourage coming in with pomp and glory. And what, because of the authority that was given to them at the beginning, this is now years later because Rome would have been the world rulers, but during Daniel's time, it would have been Darius the Mede, so the Medes and the Persians. And so it was Daniel, either through a vision or a dream, it's called his star. We've been, I think we went back to Numbers 24 is where it is, if I remember right. And it, it prophesies about that. Oh, it's bugging me, so I'm, not, I'm gonna go back there real quick. I'm thinking it's Numbers 24. It is, and it says here, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of Tumult. And uh, here we read, I beheld him, a star shall come out of the east. And here in Matthew 2, are the Magi coming? Well, they were following a star. Well, here it's called his star. Again, we have an Old Testament prophecy. We have it fulfilled here in, in um, Matthew 2, for we have seen his star. And um, we want to know if you know where the king of Israel is to be born. Now I'm going to combine a couple of these. Let's go down to verse 4 through 6. And when he had gathered, this is Herod, it says all the, all the um, city, including Herod, was troubled uh, when they saw them. Now that, they're not going to be all bent out of shape over three guys on camels coming in. But if they have the authority of removing and replacing um, kings along with the Roman Empire uh, there was probably some guess up to maybe as much as 20,000 to take care of any um, um, fights that they might get into along the way so this this conception that we have of three wise men uh-uh. 
where we're talking warriors and kingmakers. And it troubled Herod greatly, and it says all of Jerusalem with him. And the question was, do you know where the king of Israel is going to be born? And when verse four, where they had gathered the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he inquired of where the Christ was to be born. Now, what's interesting is they knew. (laughs) So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for it is written by the prophets, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are you not least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod goes on to on say, uh, he called the wise men, and he says, hey, when you guys find out where the star leads you to, you come back and tell me so that I can go there and worship him too. Well, what he's thinking in his back of his mind is what we read down in verse 18, where it said when he, the wise men were warned by an angel not to return to Herod, but to go back a different way, Herod sends down his henchmen and he kills all the male children, two years and younger, fulfilling another prophecy from Jeremiah 31. So the, the prophecy comes from Micah, uh, you can turn there if you want to, or I'll just uh, slip over to it. Micah chapter 5. Here it is. Micah chapter 5. I'll read verses 1 and 2. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughters of troops. He has laid siege against us, and it says, They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on his cheek. This is fulfilled. In Mark 15, verse 19, when the soldiers beat Jesus with rods. Then in verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are literal among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. Who they have in view here is God forever and ever and ever, from everlasting. And where is he going to make his entrance? He's gonna make his entrance in this little town called Bethlehem that you're looking at right here. That all happened there. Now, turn with me what goes along with this. Um, Let's go to the third one. Let's go to the book of Daniel chapter nine. That's uh, the second one, the third one, Daniel 9, Old Testament prophecy. Picking it up in verse 24, the first 19 verses is a prayer of repentance by Daniel. They've been 70 years in Babylon, and it's time to go home. Daniel had been there the full 70 years. So it's a prayer of repentance, and he said, Lord, seven years are up. I want to go home. And in the middle of his prayer, he's interrupted um, in his prayer by Gabriel. And um, I, here's a sort of a sidetrack here. He's going to explain to him future events, but the main 
thing that we're going to find here is the very day that the Messiah is going to be revealed. But before we get into prophecy, let's make it more personal. Because it's one thing to have head knowledge and know these things. But it's more important you have a love relationship with the Lord. Good place for an amen? So what do we find here? We have, before he gives the revelation, he gives relationship in verse 23. At the beginning of your supplication and command went out, I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. So before revelation, we have relationship. God loves you. And it's one thing to have information, but it's more important to have the relationship. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And now he gets into it. And I'm going to not go through this in depth. I'll um, explain it. In verse 24, basically, he's he's saying, I'm going to deal with Israel for 490 years. Um, To your people, those would be Jews and the holy city. There's no reference here to Gentiles. Just your people and the holy city, which would be Jerusalem. And he will accomplish in these 490 years six things. And if you want to read them later, you can. But then he says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 69 weeks and two weeks. And in other words, 69. The streets will be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. All right, what we have here is when they were allowed to leave Babylon, less than 50,000 went back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in ruins. And um, they had gotten pretty comfortable living in Babylon. So the majority stayed. And I'm not going to have you turn to Nehemiah, but um, Artaxerxes is the king. And um, Nehemiah is bummed out because he just got a letter that said Jerusalem is laying in waste. Everybody's discouraged. Nobody's working on the temple. Some of them are working on their own houses. And uh, he has to look happy in front of the king every day because he's a cupbearer. He's the guy that brings the, the glass of wine to the king. I suppose to taste it first and then give it to him, whatever. But he came in and you weren't allowed to be unhappy before the king. And Nehemiah is not only unhappy, he's bummed out. And the king looks at the body language, looks at his face, and he goes, what's your problem? And he just blurts it all out. He says, I got this news. Nobody's doing anything back in Jerusalem. Nobody's working. And he says, what do you want? He says, what I want is this. I want a command. I want an edict. I want a lot of money. And I want you to give me an order to go back with money to buy timber from Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon. And you give me this authority. King says, are you coming back? I says, I'll come back. He says, that's all I want to know. Granted. So when it says here, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, if it's a 490-year period of time, you have to have a beginning date. Agreed? You got to start the clock somewhere. Where did it start? With this decree. 
And we can nail that down when that was. So Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, gets into a lot of detail. He worked for Scotland Yard, um, uh, expert in Bible prophecy. And um, he lays all of this out for us. But the most important thing is it gives us a starting point, but then it says, until Messiah. Well, here's a prophecy that tells us that it's gonna be after 69 weeks or 173,880 days predicated upon uh, their 360-day calendar, um, it, it brings you to April 632 A.D., so we have the very day. Here's the prophecy. To me, it's, to me, it's the most incredible prophecy, or one of them, in the entire Bible. And then it goes after, after it and says, and after the 62 weeks and seven, 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. The word there is karat, means to be executed. They executed our Messiah? Yes. For himself? No, he's without sin. Pilate said he's blameless. Well, for who? For you. For me. And here it's all foretold in the book of Daniel. And the people of the prince who shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, Jesus prophesied that. In 70 AD, the people of the prince who is to come is a reference to the Romans. And... um, the end will be with the desolation till the end of the wars of desolations are confirmed, period. This is all part of history. Verse 27 has not yet happened. There's a gap between 26 and 27. Then he, this is a reference of the prince who is to come as a reference to the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week. Well, how long is a week? Seven years. So I don't know if you guys remember Arafat and the Oslo Accord Agreement. It goes back a ways. But they made a covenant. They broke it, of course. <laughs> but how long was it for? It was a seven-year covenant that Arafat never held up to. Well, it's going to repeat itself. Uh, people are wondering about who the Antichrist is. We're not going to be here. We don't know. You can guess whoever you want to. Is he alive? I believe it with all my heart. And he's in the wings waiting. And um, the only way you'll know who the Antichrist is, it'll be the man who signs an agreement with Israel for seven years. And then you can go, that's him. And any speculation up until that point is simply that. There's nothing more than speculation. Verse 27 has not yet happened. Then he, the Antichrist, the people of the prince to come, the Romans who destroyed the city, who destroyed Rome? Uh, Not Rome, who destroyed Jerusalem? The Romans, 70 AD. Uh, But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offerings. Well, this is where the mark of the beast is implemented. I'm getting people almost on a weekly basis saying, Dwight, I really, I really think the max is the mark. And I say, um, no, it's not. 
but it sure is a precursor to the mark. It might be modified a little bit when the Antichrist implements it, but it's not implemented until halfway into the tribulation period. Then and only then, if you don't take the mark or the number of his name, only then and only then is the mark of the beast. Now we may have, there's, there's people playing word games right now with saying that it really is and so on and so forth. No, all you have to do is say, that's foolish, you don't understand Daniel 9 verse 27. You don't understand that it's not implemented until a Revelation chapter 13. But let's face it, the signs are all around. Um, a lot of places I heard in, especially New Zealand and Austria and um, I'm in Australia, Canada, um, mandates are really getting tough. They're forcibly going into people's homes and jabbing them. Not here, not yet. And to me, that just tells me it's really late. (laughs) It's really late. And we shouldn't be looking for the Antichrist anyway. We should be looking for Jesus Christ. You guys will never know who the Antichrist is. Okay, I'll probably get some emails on that one, but that's all right. All right, so now uh, Daniel 9 goes along with two prophecies happening. This tells us to the very day, April 632 A.D. So what was going on on April 632 A.D.? On our way there, I want to stop at Psalm 118. So let's look at Psalm 118, which is what we call a messianic psalm. There are five different kinds of psalms. Um, Some joyful. We read a joyful one this morning, praising the Lord. There are messianic psalms, which are prophetic. And that's what I'm having you turn to right now. Psalm 118, picking it up in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day. Now that I take literally. This is the day which the Lord had made. Have you ever seen those Hallmark cards? This is the day that the Lord has made? They don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) It is a reference to a specific day. This is the specific day that Daniel talked about that would be 173,880 days after the command was given. This is the day which the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, Some Bibles say Hosanna here. It says, save now, I pray, O Lord, O pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, that's what we call a messianic prophecy. Now let's um, turn to Zechariah chapter nine. Zechariah is right, second to the last book of the Old Testament, if that helps you out at all. And it's a prophecy about Jesus riding a donkey 
Now on the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, which happened to be April 6, 32 AD. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Well, who's the king? Jesus Christ. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, verse 9 has been fulfilled. But again, uh, I want to get you used to the fact that you can read a verse and then there can be a gap of 2,000 years. And that's the case right here. That happened 2,000 years ago. Verse 10, it hasn't happened yet. It's still yet future. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he will speak to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. When Jesus came the first time, did he reign from sea to sea? No. Didn't make it much past um, Galilee, Jerusalem, that area. But so we have a gap here, and it is a reference to when the millennium is set up and he will reign over the entire earth. Now, let's go to where this actually, it, it fits together, which is Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, let's read the fulfillment of, of um, Jesus riding the donkey. Again, this is exactly 483 years after Daniel received the prophecy from Gabriel. Verse 28 of 19. When he had said this, he went on ahead going into Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he came to Bethage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he went, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, "Go to the village opposite you, and as you enter, you're going to find a, a colt tied on, which no man has ever sat. Loose him and bring him to me. Go steal him. <laughs> and if anyone asks you, what are you loosening him? What are you doing? Thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So those who were sent." departed and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said, why are you loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And uh, it must have been neat hanging out with the Lord. And I just go over there a couple blocks, you're gonna see this donkey, just take him. Uh, the boss is gonna ask you what you're doing. Don't let that bother you. I'll take care of it. And um, so they brought him to Jesus and they threw down their garments on, on the colt and they sat Jesus on him and they went and they spread their clothes on the road and then they went now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives and the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen and then they quote Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Exactly as 
foretold. And the second part of it is um, uh, uh, verse 39, we find that the Pharisees, hearing this, get really upset with Jesus because they know that Psalm 118 has one application. It is a prophecy concerning the Messiah, and they know it all too well. And some of the Pharisees called to them from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Correct them. They think you're the Messiah for Pete's sake. It doesn't say for Pete's sake in my Bible. I just kind of threw that in there. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. What was Jesus' protocol when it came to healing people? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't make it known. Not this time. This time, he said, if they don't cry out, then the stones are gonna cry out. And like I kiddingly always like to say, don't you wish that they would have just shut up for just a minute? (laughs) I never heard uh, stones sing before. Uh, Now you guys went to the Rolling Stones. I know what you're thinking. No. But somebody was gonna make a joyful noise that day if the people didn't. And they did. The Pharisees knew it. And they said, these people think you're the Messiah. Well, he is, because Daniel said, this is the day that the Lord has made. This day is the day that the Lord has made. Ah, we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Here he is. And he not only does not deny the, the um, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of, the accusations being poured upon him, but says they have to happen because it's prophesied about me. And as he drew near the city, he began to weep over it. One of two times that Jesus wept. Why? Because he knows he's not gonna be accepted. His own people that he came to are gonna reject him. And he says, because of this, if you had only known, especially, now notice this, in this your day. This was the day. The things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you. Now he begins to prophesy what Daniel talked about in Daniel 9 about the city being destroyed by the Romans. Here Jesus is gonna prophesy about it. This would have been 32 AD, so we're talking about 38 years later. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, will level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. My friends, what is the implication? They should have known. They should have known as Daniel did. 70 years, Lord, let's go home. How did he know? He was reading Jeremiah. How do we know the things that we're talking about today? We just simply having a Christmas service talking about Old Testament prophecies that tell us that Jesus truly is who he claimed to be. All right, let's go on to, that was four and five. Um, Let's go to Isaiah chapter seven. 
Isaiah chapter seven, picking it up in verse 14. We read, Ahaz is having a, um, having problem hearing the word of the Lord from Isaiah, and he doesn't want to hear anything about the word of God. And um, so in verse 10, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, go ahead, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the heights above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He's basically blowing, blowing Isaiah off here. And then he said, hear me, O house of David. Is, is it a small thing that you weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself, he's gonna give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And here we have an Old Testament prophecy about a virgin conceiving and the name of the babe is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter nine, verses six and seven. For it says in chapter nine, verse six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Let's just sit and um, contemplate on this just a little bit. 6a a child is born is the earthly perspective. That's the earthly perspective. But the second part of it, unto us a son is given. So we have a child being born, that's the earthly perspective, but a son being given would be the heavenly perspective, all in the same verse. And the government will be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, that's John 1, that the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Turn with me to the book of uh, Zechariah. We were there once before. Again, right before the end of the Old Testament. We're in our last prophecy, number eight, Zechariah 12. And we're looking at verses 10 through 14. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inheritance of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. This will only happen, not during Jesus' ministry, but only after he returns and they realize they actually executed the one that they were waiting for all the time. Now the mourning here is to such a degree, it says there'll be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Habed Raman in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself. I mean, when you're really bummed and going through it, don't you want to be alone? Just leave me alone for now. 
I need, I need just to be alone. Uh, for the family of the house of David, they'll do it by themselves. The wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. Their wives by themselves. And the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that remain. Every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Why? Can you imagine? Judy and I watched Fiddler on the Roof the other night. One of the lines in there was they come up and they're being driven out of their town and one of them says, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to show up? A time of desperation, having to go who knows where. But that's always been their hope. That's what they live for and pray for. The coming of the one that would set up the kingdom. And that's Judaism at its core. Not just tradition. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to sing anymore. <laughs> if I was a rich man. Great movie though. Uh, so we find here that the depth of the mourning really can't be put into words because it's their whole life. And when he came, they killed him. And I guess you'd have to be Jewish and have that eternal hope within you to really understand what this is being said. But as far, if you just turn the page to chapter 13, verse six, somebody asked Jesus a question at this point. And someone will say to him, who's him? The him is Jesus. What are these wounds in your hands? And then they were answer, well, these which I was wounded in the house of my friends. My friends did this to me. And again, this is um, um, why they were in such um, mourning. Okay, I told you earlier that there are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' first and second coming. We've gone through eight of them. Um, By the way, that was fulfilled in John 20. Um, I have a question. Now at this point, if we only touched on eight of them, I'm going to move past the realm of faith and just go into the area of logic and common sense. And I'm doing it for a reason. We are saved by faith. But if there's 300 that have been fulfilled and I've just given you eight, I want you to know that the probability factor of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled by one man, the probability factor, for you mathematicians out there, is one to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros after it. That one man would complete these prophecies. We can look back at history. It's a done deal. It's been fulfilled. Now, um, Mark Jeffries is where we're stealing this quote from. I thought it was Bissler, but Mary told me this morning, no, Mark Jeffries is the one that actually used an illustration 
to show the magnitude of what I just said. He said, take the state of Texas, pretty big state, and then cover it with quarters or silver dollars, two feet down. Cover the whole state with quarters, two feet down, and put an X on one of them. Blindfold the man, put him anywhere he wants to go, and turn him loose. The probability factor of him wandering from Houston to Dallas to wherever in Texas, um, the probability factor of him reaching down and pulling one up and having the quarter with the exon is equivalent to one in 17th to the 17th power. That's the probability factors. Now, I'm asking you this morning because there's a lot of debate. Is Jesus the only way? How do we know? You gotta have faith. No, you don't have to have just faith. All you have to have is common sense, okay? All you have to have is to be reasonable and be honest with yourself. And um, um, undeniable, indisputable, is the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Creator, and um, you got a choice. You can blow, you can blow the, statistic, the, the stats off if you want to. If you do, I'm gonna call you an educated fool, all right? Get mad at me later. <laughs> but my friends, you're not using common sense. Do the math is the way to say it. We are saved by faith. But the Lord simply puts, he he presents all this to us, but then he said, okay, ball's in your court. Here's my question. Are you willing to play Russian roulette with your eternal soul with the Bible study that you heard this morning? That Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. You see, the angel proclaimed in Luke 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Really? Peace? Look around. I'm looking real close at Russia and Ukraine right now. I'm looking real close at uh, China and um, Taiwan. I'm looking close at the agreement we just made with Japan that if um, China goes after Taiwan, we're involved with it. I'm looking real close right now with what Israel is doing in um, taking out nuclear sites in Iran. And um, I see Ezekiel 38 right around the corner. It can happen today. And um, um, all I'm saying again is there will be no peace on earth until he returns. Um, When Jesus said, this is what Jesus said about his coming, peace on earth, really? Turn with me to Mark Uh, Matthew chapter 10, as we're getting ready to close some things up here. Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10, picking it up in verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. 
Well, that's what the angel said. But don't think that. I haven't come to bring peace on earth. I've come to bring a sword. I've come to set a man against a father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of her own household. Well, here we are. It's the holiday season. And um, we're sitting around uh, Christmas table, eating. And um, some of you are thinking, well, this might be my last chance to witness to my brother. Well, maybe I'll sneak it in here. Um, some families have rules. Um, no politics, no religion. No talking about that stuff here. Uh, this year, I, throw, I suppose you could throw in the vax. And uh, they're arguing about that, and there's a division about that. But what's the other big division? Oh, why'd you have to go and become a Christian for? Why'd you do that? And um, there's that division that comes because all you want to talk about is Jesus and them getting saved, and they don't want to hear a word, word about it. And so we have the sword. Don't think I've come to bring peace. No. If you let your light shine, my friends, you're going to cause division. And you need, need to know that you don't give up. Let me re- rephrase that. There is a time when they're so adamant that um, Jesus actually said when they was, he was blown off by a village, they wouldn't receive him. James and John wanted to call it on fire out of heaven. <laughs> no, he said, just shake the dust off your shoes and move on. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Well, what does that mean? Well, the pearl is the preciousness of this book that, that you have here. Do you realize this is your most valuable possession? It is. This is your most valuable possession. But if they don't hear it and refuse to hear it, and uh, there, is, there is that place where the Lord says, move on. Go, go share your pearls with somebody that wants them and is open to it. My friends, I, I'm pleading with you because I don't think we're going to be here next year. I really don't. So get, get, your, get your, your time in. Sow your seeds now. Yeah, but it'll upset the whole Christmas party deal and the whole thing. So what? At least you left them something to think about. Tell them this. Tell them Damascus is going to be destroyed and never be rebuilt again. It's going to happen real soon. I throw that one out a lot right now because I think that could happen right now. Because Iran is stockpiling ammo in southern Damascus right now. Lots of it. And all they have to do, they're bragging about the speed of these uh, um, missiles that can go ten times the speed of sound and and uh, actually take out a city in less than five minutes, even from a submarine. A lot of rhetoric, a lot of rumors of wars. Isn't that what Jesus said would be in the last days? Well, there's a lot of rumors of wars going on. And so it goes on to say, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Yeah, but he's my dad. Well, love your dad. Aren't we supposed to honor our father or our mother? Absolutely. But who do you love first? What's the first and greatest commandment? Well, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength and soul and might. 
everybody else, your wife, might I say your cat or dog? <laughs> and a lot of places there in second place. <laughs> no, the Lord has to be first. Why was the Lord upset with the church of Ephesus? They had everything going, man. They had all the programs up and running and going. He says, repent, because you've left your first love. Get back to where you should be. Either I'm number one or I'm not there at all. He doesn't give us an option. Jesus said, you are either for me or you are against me, and there is no middle ground. Is everybody with me on that one? You're either for me or against me. Not in between, well, maybe I believe in Jesus, maybe I don't. No, then you don't. If you confess me before men, are you ashamed to witness? Are you ashamed of what people might think about you? You gotta let that one go. Um, Jesus said if they hated me, they're certainly gonna hate you. And they certainly hated him. So I'll close with the three main reasons that Jesus came. The first one, I want you to turn, and this will be short. First John chapter three, verse eight. The three main reasons that Jesus came. First John three, verse eight says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. What was his first sin? He lied, as God said. For this purpose, the Son of Man was manifested. Why did Jesus come into the world? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To take back what he rightfully won on Calvary's cross. He came, John wept so much, to the very fact that the earth would remain in the hands of the devil for all time. He couldn't handle it. So why did Jesus come? It tells us right here, to destroy the works of the devil. Second reason that Jesus came, we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we're looking at verse 27. He's praying, um, he says in verse 20, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He didn't want to go to the cross. What shall I say? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came into the world. The Bible says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth was laid. So the second reason that Jesus came was to die on a cross for my sin and your sin, to redeem us. For this purpose I came into, for this hour. All right, the last one, to eventually keep his promise to Abraham and David and establish an eternal kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever and ever, but he had to come and make that covenant with Abraham and with David. I close with this on Christmas Eve, and I'll close with it this morning. And um, 
You're thinking Dwight's right on track because this is the second time he said he's closing. It has to do with things that God can and cannot do. There's three things God can't do. Well, number one, the eternal one cannot lie. He cannot lie. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof. Every word of it. Every word of it is true. He cannot lie. What else can't God do? He can't learn. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows what you're gonna do before you do it. He knows what you're gonna pray before you pray it. There isn't anything he doesn't know. He can't learn. And there's another thing he can't make you do. He can't make you love him. He's given you free will. So what we do is present the truth. Ball's in your court. What are you gonna do with it? You see, what hangs in the balance here is your eternal soul. And after hearing what I consider to be overwhelming evidence, just from a logical, mathematical um, point of view of just eight of these prophecies, not 300, just eight, beyond, there's, we mark time, and when we say 400 BC, what does that mean? Well, 400 years before Christ, that's what it means. And the AD, after that, well, the date, that's what, the time after Jesus, BC and AD. And we mark time itself from it. And he wants to offer you, it's Christmas time and everybody's in giving gifts. Well, the greatest gift that God has ever given the gift of his only begotten son. And it's gotta be received personally. If you got a gift for, um, I got a real cool birdhouse made by the Amish, a really cool one, a nice one. My wife gave it to me. And um, I didn't pull out a 20 and say, thanks honey, for the, for the birdhouse. No, it's not a gift anymore, I just bought it from her. No, a gift is a gift, and it's got to be personally received and accepted. But it can't be forced upon you. Christmas is all about accepting God's free gift for you. Greater love is no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for you. And Jesus did that for you on an individual basis for the whole world. The whole world can be saved, but the whole world won't be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 24, the signs to look out for. Four times in Matthew 24, he warned about this. That in the last days, false teachers are gonna come. You see, we just don't have the gospel that we're talking about this morning. We got lots of religions out there, a lot of isms. And you gotta be wise enough to know truth when you hear it. I'm hoping you're hearing truth this morning. And I hope that if you're in the balance or if you're watching online, and you're looking ahead at 2022, and you're thinking, there's gotta be something out there better than what I got. Well, here it is. There's nothing better. The peace that passes perfect understanding in the middle of the storm, a satisfaction of the soul that can't be satisfied with anything else in this world. 
Everything else will fall short and fade away. Even the present you got last night, you'll forget about next week. (laughs) But not him. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. And behold, I got a place that I made especially just for you. Hmm, I wonder what that looks like. Kind of looking forward to that. Yet it's all by faith. But the mathematical probability is so overwhelming. So not just faith, but pure common sense the Lord gives to us. I'll give you one guy's name. It's not my notes either. That even goes farther than the mathematical probability that I shared with you this morning. The guy's name is uh, Dr. Ivan Pannon. You might, might want to write it down. Lived in the 1800s. He's a Russian mathematician who came to Yale and um, his major was mathematics. Uh, he wasn't saved when he came. He got saved at Harvard. Boy, Harvard sure took a flip, did it? <laughs> Went the other way. And he became a Christian. But being a mathematician, and a brilliant one indeed, he came up and he noticed that there were certain patterns in the Bible. Now, in the Hebrew language, there's 22 letters. And of those 22 letters, every one of them has a numerical number attributed to that letter. And I can't get too much into it except to say that Dr. Ivan Pannon, when he discovered um, a series, that's a good way to put it, of points in the Bible that revolve around the number seven, the number of completion, he spent 50 years of his life writing 50,000 pages proving that there was no way man could have anything to do with the book that you're holding in your hands this morning. Be a Berean, his name is Dr. Ivan Pannon. Then he put this out because he was getting arguments from his unsaved colleagues at Harvard. He says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give $100,000 to the mathematician or anybody for that matter who can prove me wrong that money has never been collected I think I'll leave you with that Dr. Ivan Pannon why don't we stand and Lord with all we've talked about this morning the evidence is overwhelming because of Bible prophecy that uh, you are who you claim to be when you would come uh, how many times it was foretold that the reason for your coming was to destroy the works of the devil um, to very purpose of coming it was to die on the cross even though you didn't want to. Yet you said for this purpose you came to die on Calvary's cross. And then to keep your promise to Abraham and David that you would eventually, not yet but soon, establish that a kingdom where the lion will lay down with the Lamb, and there will be peace on earth, just as the angels proclaimed, but not until then. So we thank you for your word this morning. Just pray everybody here would have a blessed and, um, time with their family and friends as we get together. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.